0: Every show is a dose of inspiration. This is Success Profiles Radio. And now, here's your host, Brian K. Wright.
1: Hello, and welcome to Success Profiles Radio. I'm your host, Brian K. Wright, and it is an absolute pleasure to be with you here today. I'm honored that you chose to spend part of your day with me here, and this is going to be a fantastic and amazing show. I'll introduce my guest shortly, and I promise this is going to be a fun and informative hour. It will be terrific. I do want to take a minute or two to share some things I've been learning and thinking about lately, and I typically do this every single week. Recently, I did a Facebook video where I talked about celebrating your wins and how important that is. It's really easy to focus on all the things that could go wrong in a normal day, but when you acknowledge the things that went right, it really changes your energy. And when we train ourselves to look for the good, it becomes easier to see. For example, I experienced a win recently and that my show is now practically booked all the way to the end of the year, and I've got some terrific guests lined up. I'm really thankful for that. So think about what went well today. I promise if you spend your energy thinking about that, instead of all the things that could have gone wrong, your energy will be a lot different. Do it today. You will be so very glad you did. And with all this in mind, I'd like to introduce my guest. My guest this week is Peshman Ghadini. Let me tell you a little bit about him. Uh, He is the best-selling author of a book called Third Circle Theory, a powerful book which explains how some of today's top visionaries are made. Since the age of 25, he's been financially independent and has dedicated his time to bringing Secret Entourage and Secret Academy to life. There are unique platforms which focus on helping motivate, educate, and improve the lives of young entrepreneurs worldwide. Uh, PJ has also authored 10 books. His most recent is called Radius, the Universal Language of Business. He's focusing his efforts on teaching others the importance of self-awareness, belief, and the power of defining your role and purpose. He's also started three successful businesses, which collectively generate over $50 million a year annually. We will discuss all of these topics and so much more on today's show. And before I forget, you can download and subscribe to Success Profiles Radio on iTunes anytime you like. Even write a review. That would be absolutely terrific, and that would mean a lot. Please do that. So with that in mind, here is my guest, PJ Kadimi. How are you, Pejfan?
2: How are you, Brian? I appreciate you having me on today.
1: Hey, I'm very glad that you're here. Uh, This is going to be really fantastic, and I'm so looking forward to this. You've had a really interesting journey. Tell us how that started.
2: Well, I mean, my journey as a whole started quite a very, very, very long time ago in uh, Iran, then followed by moving to France, and then finally ending up in California, and then starting my business life all the way in Virginia. So I've been a little bit all over the world. And in Virginia, I made my name in the banking world, being a very young uh, banking bank manager at 18 years of age. And then following through by being an executive VP by the age of 23. Uh, and then kind of just following through other facades of my career, such as launching two businesses uh, by the age of 25. One of them known as VIP Motoring. The other one is Secret Consulting. And then eventually finding my real niche as a teacher uh, in the online arena, where I started with building a really large community known as Secret Entourage, and followed that up even more with uh, new platforms like Exotic Car Hacks, Watch Conspiracy, and, and really a dozen other businesses. So it's really up to you which ones you want to talk about today.
1: Absolutely. Have you always known you wanted to be an entrepreneur?
2: No, actually, truth be told, I never really wanted to. I mean, I've always seen my mom be an entrepreneur in in my earlier years. You know, she was a business owner, not necessarily an entrepreneur, and did uh, really, you know, I think average throughout the years, but created enough of an income for us to survive. She was a single mom. And through that, I kind of always knew that everything was always in my hands. But when I found my niche in banking, I really believed that banking was going to be the long-lasting, you know, like 40, 50-year career that most people dream of, because I had moved up so quickly, and I just kind of knew that, you know, I was good at it, right? So when you're good at something, you typically tend to think you're going to do it forever, especially if you're, you know, not only good at it, enjoy it, and making money doing it. So it was an interesting twist when I was kind of uh, fired from that job and had to find a new way to look at life all around and, and find new purpose in in what I wanted that purpose to be was where my entrepreneurial journey started.
1: Yeah, I certainly understand that. Let me ask you this because you have lived all over the world. You finally made it to the United States when you were a teenager. So what was it like coming from Iran? And of course, you know, tensions between us and Iran have been, you know, pre escalated for a while. What was it like coming to the United States with that as the backdrop? Was it difficult for you?
2: I grew up in France most of my life. I ended up going from Iran to France first. So I was more European cultured because I was only four years old when I left Iran. Okay. And, you know, being just that you've seen, like, once you see this aspect of war and you see this aspect of, of lack of jobs in Europe and so on and so forth, you're really getting an appreciation for how grand and freedom like everything in the United States is. And while you understand that obviously no system is perfect and no person is perfect, you know, and there's definitely flaws in everything, like in the education system the work system and everything in between, it's still so much better than everywhere else. Mm -hmm. And so you spend very little time focusing on what's wrong with the system, and really focusing on the idea of how to make the system work for you. I think yeah. that's why immigrants find it, you know, to, to work so much better and so much faster than when most people say, you know, how come these immigrants are taking all the jobs? I think it's because they don't really complain so much about the work because they've seen the other side of it, which where there's no work.
1: Yeah, I love that. That's a wonderful answer. I was reading up on some of your history and when you were in high school, you took a telemarketing job and you killed it. Tell us how you did that.
2: Well, it it wasn't really that, you know, it was more of a no choice kind of situation. I mean, I didn't have a green card. I didn't have papers. Uh, I I was going to school like legally, but I was temporarily on a hold visa status, meaning like I couldn't do anything. And I had a social security card that said not valid for work. So for me, you know, getting a job as a telemarketer was the only job I had an opportunity to have. Like this was a job where they hadn't checked my papers. I got lucky to get into a a school, uh, kind of a school permit to work. And so I didn't have to, you know, like ultimately show them papers. And I got lucky. I kind of bypassed that process. When I started there, I looked at that job just as such. Everybody in the office was young. I was young, too. But they were looking at it as yet another job. I was looking at it as my only way to make money. And so I decided very early on that I would take it seriously. And that's really what led me to going from 12 bucks an hour to 2500 bucks a week in commissions is because – I was selling roofs, uh, like roofing, siding, windows, you know, for a remodeling company. And and one of the things that really struck me as like bizarre was that everybody was calling these leads that, you know, other people were giving them to call and trying to book people appointments. But I realized quickly that I was having a very bad close ratio. I was calling a hundred people and lucky if I would even close one appointment. And so instead of trying to just call more people, because I had already tried a strategy, it didn't work. I started looking outside the box and reverse engineering a sale, even though I was that young, I understood who, was, who were the top salespeople selling in the company. And all I did was ask one of them if he would spend like half a day with me, allowing me to shadow him. And I wanted to understand how he was closing deals or who he was closing these deals with. And so when I was able to spend some time with him, I realized that the majority of the jobs he was closing were insurance jobs, mm-hmm. something that nobody's even given us a lead towards. So I understood that insurance jobs in the remodeling space were where most of the money was. And so I started calling individuals that I believed would have a need uh, for insurance repairs on their homes rather than upgrades on their homes. And so I completely changed my circumstance just by reverse engineering how one of the top salespeople sold people on buying the same products and services I was trying to pitch for appointments.
1: Uh, that that's really great. It's just the whole the whole idea of if the rules don't suit you, then change the rules to suit the situation. Because it it, it you did a brilliant thing. I mean, if, especially if you're looking at uh, neighborhoods where there was hail damage or storm damage, those people need to, feel, to get their roofs uh, done. And so you went on, out and sought those instead of just using the leads that were handed to you, right?
2: Yeah, so the, the point was that if they if they had hail damage or they had any type of damage, right, or if homes were older and, and something was broken, it was easier for them to call their insurance company and get them to cough up the 15 grand rather than finance a roof that they never interact with, see, or hear about, right, that's on top of yeah. that. So So it just made sense. And what, what was even further is that a lot of these guys didn't even know they had hail damage. Mm-hmm. So I knew which areas and neighborhoods were hit based on where the salespeople were canvassing themselves. So, sure. so I just called ahead of time, ultimately stealing, like you would call it stealing, but ultimately taking the same leads they were going to be canvassing anyways ahead of time. And so when I understood that, then it was such an easy close because they were already going to be going in those neighborhoods telling them they had hail damage. And I was already setting up appointments for them ahead because I knew they would be in these neighborhoods.
1: Right. That's brilliant. What do you consider your rock bottom moment to be?
2: Uh, I mean, I think one of the most important moments in my life, I don't think I've ever had a rock bottom moment in that sense, because I did live in a car once with my mom, but that wasn't really a rock bottom moment in the sense that it was just what we needed to do that day to survive. Uh, But one of the things that I think really resonates with me in terms of one of these moments that has really allowed me to find clarity in life was, you know, when I got fired from my banking days, I think that was really uh, a moment that really, really hit me Um, that just, I, I lost purpose and I really didn't know the path I was going to take forward.
1: Yeah. So what lessons do you think corporate America taught you?
2: Well, the, the big thing is, first off, I learned a lot about leadership. I learned a lot about sales. I learned about every aspect of my life and I still am very thankful that I've ever had that opportunity so young and that I fought for it. So I really, really loved it. Uh, And I I never regret going through corporate America. And I still, to this day, tell most people they should definitely have a job before they uh, entertain any type of entrepreneurship to any degree. But one of the things that was important for me then that I learned is that we are all always in control and we never work for anybody, regardless of what company we work for.
1: Yeah. That is such a great lesson because really, and Brian Tracy talks about this in his books, you are the CEO of your own corporation, even if you have a job, even if someone else is technically writing your check, you are the CEO of your own corporation and you need to do what makes you happy, what gives you the most value, what allows you to make the most impact in the world and, and what helps you create the best legacy if those are your goals. And we'll definitely talk about all these kinds of things for sure during the show.
2: Yeah, exactly. And I think too many people, you know, use this idea of a paycheck as an escape for saying it's not my company, so I don't have to work that hard. You know.
1: Yeah, absolutely. We are coming up against our first break. My very special guest this week is PJ Gadimi, and we will talk about his book Radius after the break, and we will talk about uh, – entrepreneurship and owning a business and uh, how businesses evolve and how to even scale businesses. We'll talk about a lot of really wonderful topics during the show. Please stay with us. This is success profiles radio. Don't go away. We look forward to uh, having you here for the entire show. Please stay with us. We'll be right back. book the survival guide to living with stress So get the healthy primate stress support supplement today at www.screwstress.com click the amazon logo it'll take you where you need to go once again that is www.screwstress.com pj Gadimi, and he is the author of the book radius he's also written several other books including his previous book which was a bestseller called third circle theory so pj tell us about radius you build this as a sequel to your book third circle theory so give us some context what are these books about and how do they relate to one another
2: yeah, so third circle theory was my unique take on entrepreneurship. Uh, it wasn't necessarily an entrepreneur book as much as it was an awareness book—a book about being a better human being and understanding the logistics of being a person, you know, and how how the mind evolves, how the how the brain thinks as it undertakes adversity and so many other things. And so, you know, in third circle theory, my my main point was to take to give people an opportunity to understand that. Every single human being on earth goes through three phases of life, the mastery of circumstance, mm-hmm. the mastery of society, and the mastery of life. and so when when one understands how to separate these three, one can really focus on growing and understanding in which direction they should be growing at any given time. And so, with that book, uh, a lot of good material in terms of having people understand where they stand but many people confused it to be a business book and said well as a you know now that i understand what true entrepreneurship is and how it differentiates from business ownership i want to undertake that and what do i do how do i do it and so came the need for a sequel and i waited three full years to really allow third circle to penetrate the marketplace and for more people to hear about it uh learn about it and really start you know adapting its principles and after three hundred thousand copies i started writing you know, the sequel, which would be known as radius reaching across different industries, uncovering solutions, which is what I consider to be the universal language of business. It is a single equation I've put together about how every single business can literally plug itself into and understand if their business is indeed the right type of business. And if it is positioned to grow through the five pillars of entrepreneurship, which are idea, product, business, brand, and empire. And so I kind of make it very easy for people to plug either an idea, an existing brand, an existing business, and to understand forward or backward where it's going, where it should be going, and what are its flaws or strengths.
1: Okay, that's great. So what motivated you to start writing books to start with? People have a lot of different reasons for it.
2: Well, first off, I hated reading my whole life. I never read a book from beginning to end, and I hated writing, too. That wasn't ever the case. Now, for me, writing, though, became an essential part of grasping this idea that if, if I believed my purpose to be teaching and I believed myself to be a teacher when I accepted that talent I had internally, I needed to find different vehicles to get the teaching to people. And so I couldn't just let my lack of you know, care for books or my lack of care for writing prevent me from getting the message out to people, which is why I chose writing a book as one of the ways to allow this message to reach people. Now, it should also be noted that I wrote nine books previous to Third Circle Theory, all were learning experiences for me to know kind of like how to write a book and how to essentially make sure that that a book is written in a manner that can really impact
1: people. Yeah. So what did you learn from some of your early writing experiences and how did that inform your writing style later on?
2: Well, early on, I was writing a lot about my experience in finance with economics, business and just basically like financial business in the sense of money and how that worked and what people should be you know, aware of and so on and so forth. I wasn't writing anything innovative in a sense, meaning I was focusing most of my writing on concepts that may already have been out there that I was trying to teach people about. Not necessarily something that was proprietary to myself. You know, it wasn't a strategy of something I did. It was more like, here's what you should do. That's good. And I quickly realized that when you really are writing about things that are not authentic to you and that are not unique to you, even if they make sense, they're going to reach some people. But people are not going to go out of their way to share it with more people. And so I I really realized that, you know, what the, where my mark would be, would be in the unique characteristics that had helped me become uh, such a good leader throughout the years. And one of my competitive advantages, which was this ability to be extremely self-aware. And so I figured that that was something very few people were talking about back then. And that was a necessity for me to kind of bring to the forefront within my own strategy of how I dealt with it and how it was effective in my own life. And so, you know, with Third Circle, I focus a lot on that. And with Radius, actually, even though I talk a lot about my businesses on podcasts and interviews, I have never yet broken down for people ever anywhere how that 50 million in revenue gets made and what are some of these, you know, structures that that allow my businesses to survive and be recession proof. Uh, regardless of what is happening, they're still able to thrive and grow year after year. But I do so in radius, in a very to a very granular level that allows people to understand how I am exercising exactly what
1: I'm preaching. Yeah, and that discussion alone is well worth getting the book. While I'm thinking about it, where can we get radius?
2: So Radius comes out on the 17th uh, of the month. It'll be on sale everywhere. Books are sold. But people right now can go to powerofradius.com, and they can uh, pre-order the book, uh, and it will be shipped out as soon as they get in.
1: Fantastic. You alluded to an idea that I thought was very interesting just a short while ago. A lot of people think that being an entrepreneur and being a business owner are the same thing, but you make a very interesting differentiation between the two. What is that?
2: So for me, business and entrepreneurship are completely different. I mean, business is very black and white. It's very simple. It's not easy, but there's a formula and usually there's a pattern or methodology and it's really about revenue and profit. That's what the goal of a business is, is to create revenue, which ultimately leads to profit and whatever that is used for leverage or common good or whatever, that's up to the person running that business. On the other hand, entrepreneurship to me is more in the gray area. It's about adaptation, innovation, and growth. It's about creating social change. And so entrepreneurship usually requires a much different mindset and a lot more experience to be able to sustain the level before the mass public adaptation that a business has. In a very simple example, uh, if you look at a coffee shop and you say, hey, I'm going to start a coffee shop, there's hundreds of ways you can look at people who have already successfully built a coffee shop and say here's what i want to take from mine and here are the things i want to do i know location matters so it's a very black and white process and you just have to get good at it meaning you have to start paying attention and delivering but the idea of serving coffee is a very black and white model on the other hand you know you're gonna have you're gonna have your customers come in buy coffee because that's already in their behavior but if we look on another way and you say okay now i'm gonna uh put rockets in space like in elon musk and space travel is now a possibility. It's going to take time for for the mass public to adapt to that belief that the visionary has, and so this idea of change, innovation, and growth, just like PayPal was for him, you know, it's like you're going to transact financially online, and people are like, "Well, you got to be crazy." So it takes years for that to kind of be adapted as the new way. Like an Uber is the same thing. Uh, so, so the idea is that whenever you're entrepreneurial in nature you're ultimately changing the behavior of those you're impacting as much as you're creating a revenue model or business model to help do such, you know, change or bring that change forward.
1: Yeah. It seems like Elon Musk is such a great example of this paradigm. You think of Tesla, you think of SpaceX, you think about the Hyperloop that he's working on now. All of these are designed to fundamentally change the industries that they're in. And then he's creating a business from all of those. Does that sound accurate?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's not that he's creating a business out of them. Is that a business model is necessary for the mass public to adapt the change. Mm. So the mass public wouldn't know how to interact with such change, right? And right. so the mass public needs a business model to be able to adapt it. Meaning, like, if Tesla said we're just going to make batteries, right, like for cars and that's it, then then all it's doing is creating a business and then selling that to to manufacturers who are making cars, right? But what it's doing is Tesla is saying, hey, we're going to change the way people see cars as a whole and make electric cars unboring. And so, as a result of that, it needs to get the mass public to adapt to that behavior. And so, it does so by creating a business vehicle known as cars, you know, or car dealerships, which allow people to purchase and pay money to adopt this change.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You also talked a little bit ago about the five pillars that are necessary to evolve a business let's let's explore that a little bit more because you can go from just an idea all the way to having a complete empire how how does that that scale work
2: so every every single business that is successful should be able to fall into this very basic five pillar category which is every idea should have the opportunity to evolve to a product or service every product or service should have the opportunity to evolve to a business And every business should have the opportunity to evolve into a brand and a brand into an empire. At each stage, uh, like this morphing needs to happen, but the structure needs to be in place to allow it to take the next stage. And so a lot of times people have ideas, but they don't understand the continuity of how their ideas turn into products and their products turn into a business, or they don't understand how uh, like a product can turn into a brand. Uh, and eventually turn into multiple verticals of brands, which end up being an empire. So because they're not thinking about this continuity or this timeline, right, they, they're they not pre-planning these different stages. They're allowing it to happen through trial and error. And through this trial and error, they're losing a lot of time and money in many cases, which yeah. is what I'm trying to prevent. And I'm trying to prevent people from going into business without understanding business. And that is the key to Radius, is I don't want to teach people business. I want them to understand the the infrastructures that make businesses function, and then understand how ideas evolve, how products evolve, how business evolves, how brands evolve, and why they become as such, so that they can prepare, instead of just wake up one day and be like, it's cool to be an entrepreneur, I'm gonna post stuff on Instagram, and tomorrow morning I'm in, you know?
1: Right. And you mentioned that at different points along the way, there are things that can trip people up and stop them from getting from idea all the way to empire. I would think at the product stage, people can sometimes get so fixated on making their product perfect before they go to market. But if you do that, you're never going to go to market, right?
2: Right. Well, I mean, that's that's fine. But there's also something bigger here. Like when you create a product, you really understand its revenue model. That's why you're not evolving into a business, Right. So, right. so that's what really happens is we're always looking at like, oh, I want an empire, but we don't understand how an idea becomes a product. We don't understand how a product turns into a business. This yeah. is where, you know, the Radius model will change that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. We've got about a minute to our break. Our My very special guest this week is PJ Gadimi. He is the author of Radius, the universal language of business. And his the predecessor to that was called Third Circle theory we talked about uh, why he started writing books the difference between entrepreneurship and being a business owner business is about making a profit entrepreneurship is about creating value and creating a legacy and we talked about how to evolve and scale your business from idea all the way to empire we will talk about so much more when we come back from the break this is success profiles radio please stay with us don't go away we will be right back And we are back. This is Success Profiles Radio. My very special this week guest this week is uh, P.J. Gadimi, and we are talking about his book, Radius, the Universal Language of Business. And so the next topic I would like to explore is the importance of leverage. This is something you talk about in your book as well. How can the average person, average business owner, take advantage of this concept better?
2: Well, I mean, leverage can, can happen in a multitude of ways, right? Money in itself is leverage, correct? But I mean, if you think about the leverage model, it's no different than what McDonald's did with uh, just their business as a whole. Like it may look like uh, it is really nothing more than a hamburger shop, but if you really dig deep, you see that it's really a real estate company. So you know, there is multitude. There's many ways for for a person to leverage either the money they're making in business, the employees they have, uh, or or to put themselves in a better position as a result of going into new verticals of business and i'll briefly give you an example so let's say for example you have a team of people that work for you in business ed right they all have some kind of uh, pay structure so you're paying them based on you know the hours they work at, at your business now let's say that business is has a sales or call center right can you perhaps start maybe a second company and have them create that same support with the same time they're already on the job right so so you're not paying them more, but now you've cut the cost of your next company to zero and yet have a whole new vertical of possibility. So so the point is, are we looking at a business of maximizing its effectiveness or are we just looking at business on a one to one ratio, which never works out that way?
1: Right, exactly. Uh- And when you wrote Third Circle Theory, you incorporated the concept of leverage not just by selling the book, which you sold many copies of, but you created an online course and created extra streams of revenue around the book. I think a lot of authors don't think about that in terms of leveraging the actual book.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, we do this from, from the very beginning, even with Radius. We offer this as a course, including the book and including the audiobook and everything in between. I mean, I, I do this for two reasons. A, I believe in the product very much, and I believe that once a reader goes through one of these two books, they'll want the additional information anyways. So so I provide them a way to, to get that all up front at once. Two, I also felt that the, a revenue model around just a $10 book or a $20 book, is one that requires a, a like a mass market penetration in order to yield any type of return uh, that can create more leverage for the business. And so I've always felt that you know if you can get to a hundred dollars price point and stand behind your product, then then there's no reason why you can't ask for one hundred dollars if you can provide enough value to justify that. And it's hard to say, hey, the book's worth one hundred bucks before someone reads it because society has trained people to believe that books are only worth 10 bucks, you know, or 20 bucks or whatever Barnes and Noble charges. So, you know, it's very hard to go to someone and say, well, my book is so much better, I guarantee you'll help your business, pay me a hundred before they read it or before they've heard about it from thousands of people. So I find that to be easier to then provide additional value, especially when you stand behind the product itself.
1: Absolutely. What has surprised you the most about being an entrepreneur?
2: Uh, I mean, I think the, the, the biggest learning I had through all these years is that nobody cares. I think that's the, none of your customers care as much as you think they care. Like, like, in other words, you know, our egos as entrepreneurs, as business owners is usually like, well, you know, they'll notice I did something wrong here or they'll notice this went bad and, and they'll never buy from me or they'll tell other people. Like we overthink everything, right? Uh, I, one of the things that surprised me is how quickly people forget. Uh, and in a good and bad way, you know, how quickly they forget the good you've created, but how quickly they also forget when you make a mistake. And so that, that was my biggest surprise, uh, you know, in the realm of business.
1: Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. You you do find out that people don't care quite as much as you do, which is why you need to really focus on your own business and Mm -hmm. getting yourself out there as often as possible so let me ask you this I want to ask you how you made your first million was it there just one way or were there a multitude of ways or a combination of ways how did that happen for you
2: Well, actually my my first million had no correlation with anything that was related to entrepreneurship or business I I was still working in corporate America Uh, I had a nine-to-five job I was making good money so let me not just give this false illusion that you know I was a normal working 50k a year guy Uh, I was making really good money like almost a quarter million a year and, and what ended up happening is I found a unique opportunity pre-recession uh, to invest in uh, real estate lots. And what I meant by that wasn't really invest either. There was a unique opportunity for me to go buy uh, pre-construction lots from new sites that were a little bit further down than where people were buying homes. Uh, and predetermined that I was like a year before the homes were ready, I was securing lots for buying a home on. And one of the things that pre-recession was not happening is there was no regulation around anything. So all you needed to buy or secure a lot was a $5,000 deposit and a pre-approval letter from your bank saying you could afford roughly what the cost of a house would be there. You know. Well, I was working in banking, so obviously I had all the pre-approval letters I could want, right. and I had $5,000 by the numbers without an issue. So I would go to all these places, I would buy $5,000 lots. And six, six months to three months before the houses were about to get ready and when you needed to spec out your options, well, the mass market had already caught on that these homes were there. And now they were coming to buy them. And when they were coming to buy them, there was 50 or 100K premiums on some of these lots because everybody wanted to be in the real estate space, especially if you were around during that era, you know, in 2004, etc. So, yes. you know, for, for me, all I did was I would stay in line. And instead of letting the builder make their 50, 100K premium, I would sell my lots to people in line for 50 to 70K, you know? And so I would take a 5K investment, make it like 70K, literally, in the matter of six months without doing a single thing. And I did this for 73 homes. Uh, on the 73rd one, I was stopped. Meaning like they figured out my little trick and they put a stop to it by reiterating their contracts, et cetera, that, you know, you wouldn't be able to flip your lots and, and so on and so forth. And, and that kind of stopped me. So I had a lot of leverage, uh, in in that. So when I left banking, I actually left banking, not only very hefty, you know, money in my pocket, both for my bonuses and salaries, and because I was very good at saving too. So I was never the guy to live above his means, but I also had a very nice, uh, nest egg from all the real estate deals I had done in the past.
1: That is well done. Congratulations. That's that's very creative, and and you have to be very creative in order to be very successful in a lot of ways. Let's talk about the idea of taking risks. A lot of people are very averse to this. Uh, why do you think that is?
2: Well, I think because anything risky is out of your comfort zone, right? You're risk right. losing something because you don't understand how to make it back. That's typically why you're afraid of things, especially when it's risk around business, right? Like, like the average individual works, let's say 80 hours a week and makes $2,000, right? So, so for the, and out of that $2,000, since most of it is debt and everything else, they have roughly maybe 300 or $500 of leverage that week, right? Meaning for them to be able to lose $2,000, that would mean losing almost two and a half months worth of work. So, so to them, usually that's how they look at risk. They're like, oh my God, it's $2,000. It would take us so long to recoup that $2,000 because they don't understand how to make $2,000, right? Right. But when you're someone like me and you can make literally 15, 20 grand a day doing nothing just sitting at home, you don't look at that risk the same way, right? Like to me, if someone comes up to me and says, oh, I got a 100K kind of gig, we can do this and that, I'm not looking at it as it's a huge potential risk, right? Because from my perspective, my leverage is a lot more, so it's like, it's okay, you know, it's okay to take that risk. So I think when people start understanding that not to associate not to associate their particular work situation with the leverage they need and the risk they're taking, then they can make consciously better decisions and be less afraid of losing because then they're looking at each potential opportunity rather than actually gauging how that opportunity can hurt them, but rather looking at the upside or the brighter side rather than the bad side.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So what's the biggest risk that you've ever taken in your business?
2: So when I, was, when I owned VIP motoring, uh, like in the earlier stages, when we started, uh, during, when we knew the recession was coming, uh, that was one of the big problems I had, is that I had to figure out uh, an opportunity to change my entire revenue model, because my revenue model was founded on the idea that dealerships were financing cars for people up to 120%. And I knew that because I, was, I had a banking background, I knew that when the recession would come, that was going to end real quick. So I knew car sales were going to plummet down a crap. And so one of the things I did very, very early was I would go and talk to dealerships that were carrying distressed inventory. And I literally offered to buy their entire inventory at discount, putting my cash flow to near like zero. Uh, just I did this on the basis that it would retain my relationships. B, it would also help by allowing the dealerships to survive and give me business. So ultimately, I carried, because I was very cash liquid... I carried three local dealerships that fed me most of my business by literally floating their inventory in my own business for a total of two consecutive years and leaving me at a very bad cash position just to make sure that I wasn't going to hurt my existing revenue model. So in other words, you know, like what you're doing is you're hedging your bet, right? You're kind of guessing where you're going later and you're saying, hey, this is where that road can end. So let me get ahead of it and build a bridge uh so that they don't lose that. At any given time, it could have gone bankrupt as a result of doing that,
1: yeah, absolutely. So if you were investing money in something right now, what would that be? I know that in the past you are were a big fan of investing in startups. Is that still where you're at, or are you thinking about something else these days?
2: No, you know, like I used to invest uh, like I used to work with people and like be like short-term loans for capital for you know small businesses, just because I was bored and I had nothing better to do. But now I, I don't look at that anymore because I've done that quite a few times. and, I really found that I don't. People don't usually meet the expectations I have in how they run their business, and so I I usually choose to not be involved in something that I don't directly have control over anymore. Yeah. So you know, where do I invest my money in myself? I mean, I'm a very well known uh, influencer in the luxury space, like luxury lifestyle space, and so I'm always acquiring very very rare luxury goods, anything from exotic cars to watches to art to anything else. And that requires, in order to win at that game, it it requires significant liquidity, and so that's where you
1: know I'm putting most of my eggs ex- these days. Absolutely, uh, the importance of legacy. I mean, that's that's important to you as well. I mean, obviously, you've written a lot of books and you've you've done very well, and you are very much about helping people and providing value. How important is establishing legacy for you?
2: Uh, I mean, very, very important. That's part of the reason I had started uh, Secret Entourage Third Circle Theory and all that stuff is because I believe that my life mattered more than being able to focus on making money. You know, I had Mm -hmm. learned how to make money tremendously through a lot of uh, different, you know, venues, but uh, it, it really came down to just this idea that I wanted to matter more and I wanted to carry on past just this idea of, living in society, you know, which is governed by money. And so I started writing books and started teaching because I figured that the impact we have on others carries true forever, but the money we make can only be used in this lifetime, you know? So, right. so I thought about it and I said, you know, where do I want my life to look like? What do I want my life to look like in 10, 15 years? And I remember that the number one reason why people remembered me throughout the years before I started Secret Entourage was because of the impact I had made in their career, the job opportunities I had created for them and so
1: on and so forth absolutely we are coming up against our final break i cannot believe how fast this show is going what a great hour this has been so far we are talking with pj Gademi, and his book is called radius the universal language of business and we will explore more and we will talk about secret entourage when we come right back this is success profiles radio don't go away stay with us
0: The Toginet Radio Network, broadcasting quality programming to the world. It's the Do Not Disturb sign has been around as long as there have been hotels where discretion was a bitter part of value. One lecturer at Cornell University's School of Hotel Administration traces the Do Not Disturb sign roots to the aristocracy of the early 20th century at grand establishments such as the Ritz in Europe. It sure is annoying when you just want to be a slug of bed and someone knocks at the door and says, housekeeping? What's the word for the semi-conscious state between sleep and wakefulness? Hypnopompic! There are days when I wish I could wear a do not disturb sign around my neck. What to call someone who wants to lay in bed all day? i'm carolyn davidson and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app too funny for words welcome back to success profiles radio so many people live their lives wanting more than they currently have and this show will clearly demonstrate the principles if i can do it you can do it so let's get back to the show this is success profiles radio and here again is your host, Brian K. Wright.
1: And we are back. This is Success Profiles Radio. My very special guest this week is PJ Gadimi. And his book is called Radius, the Universal Language of Business. And I would like to ask you about another one of your businesses that uh, you've been working on for a while. It's called Secret Entourage. It's a really wonderful community of entrepreneurs. Tell us more about that.
2: Yeah, so Secret Entourage was started... Uh... Wow, that's been like almost seven and a half years now. It's almost the beginning of, of why all of this teaching came about. And so I created a community that uh, was about bringing together the brightest minds and, and talents from across the globe that I felt had made an impact in their respective industries. And within you know, 45 minutes, have them teach a particular segment on why they were so successful in that industry. And then I was able to take that recording and that video uh, in a manner that really put people in the seat where they were having that conversation with that person. And then ultimately help create like this online academy that would not only bring uh, aspiring and working entrepreneurs together, but also help them mingle and interact and get mentored by some of these incredible minds uh, that had found such success. And so my my belief was always that why go to an event where you watch someone speak on stage, where there is a separation from from student to teacher, you know, where someone is teaching and 100 people are watching. Why not be in an academy where if we when we do have a, a, a live event, people are at a bar and they're literally talking to each other. And, and we're not putting a teacher on a pedestal. We're allowing people to interact with them instead. And that is the key, you know, and that was why I think the the program found such success and uh,
1: it continuously uh, moved forward from there. That's great. What are some examples of some topics that get covered?
2: Uh, Every, I mean, every industry from real estate to apps to uh, like the fitness industry to uh, even the automotive industry, anything and everything uh, within each industry, every week I bring a, a new talent that can share something. Uh, about their success, and then it gets archived in that particular industry. So, at any time someone joins, they always have five to six different mentors in almost like in over two hundred plus industries.
1: Wow, that's great! And you've got some pretty well-known people uh, who ha- are mentors in this uh, program as well.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we we have a, a few guys from Shark Tank. You know, we we got a lot of really well-known uh, auto guys, app guys. I mean, the the list is so long; it's hard to really pinpoint, but I mean, all the big names that, you know, you hear on TV, et cetera. I mean, we have Damon John, we have Kevin Harrington, uh, and, and we do have, uh, like Andy Frazella, who's really very, very well known in the influential space. Uh, we've had Gary V on the show twice. So things like that, uh, you know, we have people on that I think are not just the big names, but we also have people that others may not have heard of. Right. Uh, and I think that is the key is that I like bringing forward people that, do not typically have a voice because they're not involved in this online marketing space. So I like that they have something to teach that's rather unique. And just because they're not out there doesn't mean their their value isn't substantial.
1: Right. Absolutely. Where can people find more out about this?
2: Uh, anyone can visit Secret Entourage at com, And the academy itself is located at secretacademics.com. Um, that's where the actual entrepreneur side of it is. A lot of these incredible success stories, uh, a lot of these incredible success stories are free on the course site as publication, and the video segments are the ones that uh, are the ones that are uh, really the the premium of the of the academy
1: itself. Absolutely. So, what advice do you have for entrepreneurs who might be struggling a bit right now? Because we all have been there.
2: Well, I mean, it depends what they're struggling with. I tell most people that, you know, entrepreneurship is an ongoing art, the art of bettering yourself to a stage where you meet and understand how the world functions and where you function within it. I think that too many people like confuse this idea of entrepreneurship and business and as a result get stuck. Uh, And I tell people that I think the most important concept in, in business and entrepreneurship is to understand that you're not competing with anyone but yourself. And so stop looking at what other people are doing. Stop assuming that because someone is 25 and they've had a $10 million success story, then you're behind because you're 35. You know, like these things don't matter. Like nobody is in control of your life but you. So it doesn't really matter what other people are doing or what level of success they've had doing what. If someone has had success, try to see if you can learn from it. But don't compare yourself, which is one of the biggest problems with social media today is that 10 years ago. This is really funny, Brian. But ten years ago, think about when social media wasn't really as dominant as it is today, right? If right. you had, if you had a neighbor who had a nicer car and a house, right, that was nicer than yours, you were curious about what he did, and you competed with that guy, you know. And, right. and that was the extent of your competition: was your neighbor, the guy you saw at work, you know, the car you saw driving down the road in your city, and so on and so forth. Today, people are comparing themselves to people in Asia, you know, people in Europe. People that are five times older than them, 10 times younger than them. And then they're, they're, they're comparing themselves to people whose context they don't understand in full because they're only saying a segment of it on social media, you know? Right. So, so because of that, is that really a comparison? You know, because they're not really understanding the circumstance that person started with. They don't understand how much money they started with. They don't understand the skills they had. There's so many variables to why someone can find success in so many different paths that it makes it impossible for you to find success by comparing yourself to others. If you, I tell entrepreneurs today, if you improve 1% each day, just 1%, by the end of the year, you'll have improved 365%, which I guarantee you that 365% later, you're better off than 99% of the population when it comes to looking at growth year over year.
1: Yeah, that is absolutely fantastic. And something else that I've heard you talk about is the idea of valuing the fears that you have overcome. I've not heard that expressed in quite that way before.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's really simple. We're all filled with fears. Like, that's normal. Like, we're all byproducts of our environment. Our environment has taught us to be afraid of certain things for different reasons. As long as we understand what these fears are, we we don't need to completely delete them from our minds. We need to be aware of what they are and we need to ensure that they are not limiting our thought process, meaning we are not frozen as a result of our fears. And when we are able to overcome them so that we don't become stagnant in the world of business or in life in general, then we should be valuing our ability to overcome them. And we should be remembering and giving us and feeding our confidence that yet there are fears bounding us to you know create limitations for ourselves, but we are able to go even further because it's not preventing us from yeah. moving forward.
1: That there you go, I love that. How do you handle adversity, and how long does it take you to get going again?
2: Uh, you know, I mean, I think adversity. I look at it as uh, there's a there's a big there's this thing in my head. That's like, what is the alternative? Like when you face a problem, right? There's two ways you can look at a problem. You can sit there and be like, this is terrible. Everything's gone. Or you can quickly find a solution and mourn later about the, you know, what the problem was. Right? Right. So, so that's where I think the key is. Uh, like, I think that people need to realize that if they don't get over adversity fast enough, meaning if they don't focus on the solution rather than mourning about the problem, then then it's they're going to mourn longer you know what i mean they're going to have bigger problems longer rather than just finding quicker
1: right exactly i find that some people take a while to get over something and of course we're all human uh some people get back on the horse pretty quickly and i i would imagine that those are the people who experienced uh the most success does that sound reasonable for you
2: Oh uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that those are the people that experience the most success over you know all others who are still stuck in their bubble.
1: Right. Exactly. So let me ask you this, PJ: If you were starting over today, knowing what you know right now, what would you do differently?
2: Uh, I think you know I don't necessarily think I would do anything differently other than I would really embrace the idea that you know sometimes it's okay to take a long. Like I would you know if I knew early on how much entrepreneurship is like, I, I er, let me rephrase that. Early on, I created businesses that allowed me to leverage the money to focus uh, on entrepreneurship only, you know? Like, so meaning like I had enough money to undertake something that was gonna take longer. Uh, should I have known how long that was gonna take, I would have done things very differently where I would have built even more businesses early on before focusing on entrepreneurship as a whole. I think entrepreneurship is an art and I think it's often misunderstood and confused with business. Uh, which is the big problem, you know?
1: Yeah, absolutely. What's the scariest thing you've ever done?
2: Uh, scariest thing, man. I uh I mean I think just the I'm I've always been such a big guy with debt. Like I've leveraged that because I was in banking for so long. I think the scariest thing was being in debt, eight million dollars and barely having a hundred K left in cash. You know, that's the scary thing sometimes.
1: Absolutely. I, I think a lot of people can't wrap their heads around that, but that would be a scary moment. And it's interesting, too. And T. Harvecker says in his book, uh, Secrets of the Millionaire Mind, if you have a problem like that and you view that as a level you know, seven problem and you're a level two person, that sounds like a very, very big problem. But if you're a level eight or nine person, then a level seven problem doesn't really register quite as much. So I think it really is a factor of where you are in your growth and in your journey. Uh, that is a a huge problem for a lot of people. But yeah, that, that would be very scary and and not having any idea how you're going to pay it back. That would probably be uh, the scariest part of all for sure. Uh, if you could give the 18-year-old version of yourself advice, what would you tell them?
2: Uh, I, you know, I think what I told you earlier was really, really important is don't compare yourself to other people and really yeah. strive to be the better version of yourself. Yes. I, I think if more people embrace that early on, they would find more success. But I think one other piece of advice that's really important is, Focus on your talents early. If you think you're naturally better at something than other people around you, then focus on that because there's a reason you've been given that talent. And and there's going to be a vehicle to take that talent to people and leverage it to create a business out of it.
1: That's great. Last question that I ask everybody, who inspires and motivates you?
2: Uh, I think my mom more than anybody else. You know, I've always watched her go through adversity and still come out with her head strong regardless of how bad the situation was. And, uh, you know, that's someone that, that motivates me a lot, but in the grander scheme of media, I think someone like Jeff Bezos, uh, big time from Amazon, I'm a big yes. fan of the work and some of the things he's been doing. Absolutely. Any
1: final words of wisdom for us, PJ?
2: No, guys, just if you strive to be the best version of yourself every day, then eventually, uh, you'll definitely be right. You know, you'll be that guy. That's <laughs> the best Great. version of something. And that's worth paying for, for someone else.
1: Great. And how can we uh, get a hold of you, join your tribe, or where can you direct people?
2: I think follow me on Instagram is the best way to to kind of get started. I'm at ICreateMillionaires. Join my tribe at secretacademics.com and pick up Radius at powerofradius.com.
1: Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, PJ, for being a part of our show today. It was really a privilege to have you here.
2: I appreciate it, Brian. Thank you again.
1: All right. This has been Success Profiles Radio. Join us every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern, where I interview the most successful people in the world, learn how they succeeded, what they overcame, and what we can learn from their journey. Come back next Monday, where I interview another world-class success and do the exact same thing all over again. And until then, you have yourselves a great week. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for inviting me into your home. And you have yourselves a great week. Take care, everyone. Goodbye.